This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Happy Thanksgiving. Do you take advantage on uh, Thanksgiving Day maybe to acknowledge uh, something that you are thankful for? I hope you did. Uh, at our gathering, we did. I know one thing on that day that I was thankful for. Food. How many um, bacon-wrapped little hot dog wiener things did you eat? I didn't count. <laughs> That was my problem, Holly. I didn't count either. Oh. <laughs> well, I learned a lesson because I, I should have eaten three or four, but I think I got up to eight or nine or 12 or 13. It didn't save room for the turkey. Bacon is a good thing. I am thankful for bacon. When you cook bacon, when you fry bacon in a pan, if you, if you fry a pound of bacon, how many slices do the people you're serving get? And how many do you eat before it goes out? If I only cook a pound and there's four or five people, they're each going to get half a slice. <laughs> how about chocolate chip cookie dough? Do you like chocolate chip cookie dough before you cook the cookie? I do. I eat a lot of chocolate chip cookie dough. I think it's good for you, probably. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid and my mom was baking a cake, uh, we would fight over who got to lick the beater. And, um, you know, if I won, if I got first dibs on the beater, I would eat the beater and I would enjoy the beater. The point I guess I'm trying to make about Thanksgiving is bacon is not an end in itself. Chocolate chip cookie dough is not an end in itself, nor is the icing on a beater an end in itself. But they are forecasters of portenders of things that will come that are even better. They are a means to a greater end. Don't fill up on the appetizer. Okay, That's Thanksgiving Wisdom 2022. Let's read our text. We're in uh, Luke chapter 17. I'm going to start in verse 20. And as, we, as I read this and as I give you a moment to get there in your Bibles, chapter 17, starting in verse 20, um, I want to ask you to take note of a, a particular thing as we read through this. You will find uh, in this passage the word day repeated uh, several times, many times. And repetition is always a key in a New Testament a narrative a gospel of um, what the main point of the passage is. So starting in verse 20, we'll read. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, we're there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. 
do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and the lights up in the sky, uh, flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the house hop with his goods in his house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you that in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning uh, for this text and all the words of Scripture that provide us a roadmap, that uh, show us your plan, that show us what really is, Father, that help us to discern that from what isn't. I ask this morning as we go through this passage that we would, in fact, see what's in the passage, what is in the passage, not what we want to see in the passage. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for all the ways that your scriptures come to us to enlighten us, to guide us. We pray this morning, Father, that we would be satisfied in the words of this text. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay. Now, uh, we're in chapter 17 of Luke's gospel. We're halfway through that chapter. So let's try to find ourselves where we are in the flow of uh, Luke's narrative here. In the first part of this book, uh, we found many miracles. Jesus is performing miracles here and there and everywhere. And uh, the, the point that Luke is trying to make in that first part of his book is that Jesus Christ is not just another guy. He's not just another prophet. But he is, in fact, the Son of Man that has been promised. He is the Messiah that has been promised. And the miracles testify to his supernatural power and ability. And as Luke uh, takes us through many of the miracles early in the book, um, many believe and have ears to hear, and some don't. Many do not have ears to hear. It's more in particular than not the Pharisees and the scribes do not seem to have ears to hear what's being taught. But at some point, we come to kind of a hinge pin in, uh, in the book, and it's at that point where Luke decides in his narrative, his flow of things, that they've been told enough um, miracles they have substantiated Jesus' divinity sufficiently. And so we move on to the next part of the book, and we come to kind of a hinge pin. And in this uh, hinge pin uh, part of the book, um, around chapter 11, uh, we decide, Luke decides that he's going to quit trying to convince his readers that Jesus is the Christ. But he's going to move on to the fact that 
what Jesus has in, ushered in, the kingdom that Jesus has ushered in, what will it be like? And so he's describing what it will be like, and most of what he describes that it will be like is completely countercultural and contrary to the preconceived ideas and notions that the status quo has. So we're in the part of the book where we're talking about the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, uh, just for emphasis here, Luke uses the word kingdom 51 times. 51 times in this book. Of the 51 times that he uses it, 31 of those times it's used in, in conjunction with the kingdom of God. He talks about the kingdom of God 31 times. We need to understand when we enter into the book of Luke, Luke wants to describe the kingdom of God to us. The people have been waiting a long time for the kingdom of God to come. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And there's many misconceptions about what the kingdom of God is, what it should look like, what it's going to look, out, going to look like. Another thing that's really important about chapter 17 is we've also come to a place in Luke where we're on our way to Jerusalem where Jesus has told them twice already, I go there to suffer at the hands of the authorities. I'm going there to be crucified. He has told them twice. And as we move forward from 17 on towards the end of the book, we keep hearing on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to Jerusalem. There is a tension. There's a cloud. There's, there's a great sense of doom that's in the air as he brings us to this chapter in 17. We're getting close to Jerusalem where it's all going to come to a tragic end. Uh, in the passion and suffering of Christ. So we are in a system, uh, a section of Luke. I'm going to call it the kingdom parables. He's been describing to people what it's going to be like, and uh, many of the people have not had ears at this point in time to hear this. I want to talk about this morning the kingdom of God. <clears throat> my, my chapter heading calls it the coming of the kingdom. If I read uh, the first couple of verses, it says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with a sign to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, there it is. Therefore, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Make no mistake. We are in the flow of Luke describing the kingdom of God, what it will be like in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is what it is. You and I don't get to negotiate it. We don't get to redefine it. We don't get to modify it. Often our, our, our perceptions and our ideas about it corrupt it. The kingdom of God is what it is. And Luke is going to take time this morning to tell us what it is. There have been written in my lifetime 42,597 books on the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God. I know that number because I've read half of them. <laughs> I reached a point in reading about these things and trying to understand what the kingdom of God is that everybody has, has an opinion. It's like, a, it's like everybody's got an opinion of God just like everybody has a belly button. Everyone with a belly button has their own opinion of what the kingdom of God will like. And when you read, I read through the first 21,000 of those books written on the kingdom of God, I'm, I'm finding myself having to unravel all of the speculation that's there about the kingdom of God. And rather than read the second half of the 21,000 books, I decided I would concentrate on some books in particular. 
The books I've decided to concentrate on to tell me about end times in the kingdom of God are the 66 books contained in this Bible. And I quit reading all the rest of that crap. This book, if you go through it, will tell you everything you need to know about everything that you need to know. And you won't have to read all that other stuff. If you go through this book line by line, everything you need to know will surface and it will come to you in a text, line by line through Scripture, in the plan that God has His intention to reveal it to you. Trust His timing. Trust His plan. Go with this plan. This morning we're going to find a piece of His plan about the end times, not in some weird book or some uh, um, speculative idea. We're going to try to find it in the text of Scripture, looked at, talked about in context. Okay, That's the plan this morning, what the kingdom of God is. So what is it? Let me go back and read those first two verses again. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. The thing I want you to see here is what we start this off is with a question. The Pharisees are coming to him with a question, and they're asking him is, is when? When will this happen? And he has already answered that back in chapter 11. Back in chapter 11, at the end of all the miracles section, he did a miracle. He healed a man, and they accused him of doing that by the power of Beelzebub. That the reason for their, their doing that and accusing him of that is because they couldn't deny the supernatural effect of the miracles. They were real. They were happening. This guy has supernatural power. So to undermine him, they said he's doing it by the power of Satan. And some of you familiar with that, Jesus responded, well, that's stupid. He says, a house divided against itself can't... I would, if I was doing it by the power of Satan, I wouldn't be destroying my own demons. A house divided itself cannot stand. And so he told them, since I, don't, I do this by the power of the Holy Spirit, he says this in chapter 11, since I do this in the power of the Holy Spirit, I do these things by, by, the, by the supernatural power of God and, and the, power, I, the kingdom of God is in your midst. He told them six chapters back that the kingdom of God is in their midst. And here we have them once again asking the same question, evidence and giving testimony to the fact, frustratingly, that they still don't know what he's already told them. The first thing to know about the kingdom of God is that it's already here. He has told them in chapter 11, it's already here. He tells them again in verse uh, 22, they will look here, look there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's here right now. Jesus' birth came to introduce and to, to start up the kingdom of God here on earth. It is already in progress. It is already happening. One thing we need to know that we can know for a fact is that the kingdom of God is already. It is already here. Luke is going to answer this question just in these two verses and address the Pharisees, but then he's going to stay in 22, and then he said to his disciples. I want us to understand as we go through this, he's answering a question that the Pharisees have asked. He's going to direct the majority of his answer to the disciples, but I want us to understand that the Pharisees are still there listening. 
Everybody's getting this at the same time because the main thrust of this message is directed more at the Pharisees than it is the disciples. And as we go through this, I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Another thing to notice about this is what the Pharisees are asking is what they're asking for is a sign. It's, uh, they say, when will the kingdom of God come? Well, that's a question. But Jesus interprets it as the kingdom of God is not coming with a sign. You're asking, he's basically saying, you're asking me for another sign, aren't you? Well, back when we were doing miracles, you kept asking me for another sign. Another sign. Water into wine wasn't sufficient. Feeding 5,000 wasn't sufficient, was it? Healing the deaf, healing the lame, driving out demons. You're always asking me for another sign. That's their go-to thing on any subject. So the subject comes up and they ask, they go to their go-to thing, give us a sign. How will we know this is coming? What will be the evidence of it? And he says, and he says, no, he says the, the signs, there will be no signs to be observed. Okay? Forget the sign thing. Not only am I not going to give you a sign, there will be no signs. It's already here in your midst anyways. If there were signs to be given, they would have already been given and you would have already, but the fact that you don't even know reflects the fact that there were no signs when this came, otherwise maybe you would have seen it. I am here. He tells them, number one, first thing about the kingdom of God is already here. It was introduced with the time of Christ. So let's read on. 22, he says to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go out and follow them. For as the, height, as the lightning flashes and the lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Again, he's talking about himself. He calls himself the Son of Man more than any other name in the New Testament. He's saying in his day, someday there will be a day. There is going to be a day, is what he's saying here. There's going to be days when you desire, you want to see me come. And there's one day in particular, all right? And at the end, he says, so will be the Son of Man in his day. There's a day. So we, let, we had to get a couple of words figured out here. We have to, to get in the minds of them then. The first one is um, uh, 2 Samuel 7, Daniel 7, Psalm 110, are messianic promises. The, these people had every right to understand that a Messiah was coming. All right? This was the promise, a promise that a Messiah would come. A king was going to come, was going to be the promised Messiah. A king is promised from the house of David. And this king is going to come and do what? He's going to vanquish their enemies. He's going to conquer the enemies of God. He's going to bring judgment on the enemies of God. That's the point of the coming. Sometimes we call that coming uh, the consolation of Israel. They've, had, they've been so much turmoil, abused so many times in their life, uh, taken uh, prisoners in exile, released again, that we need some consolation. And the consolation is that the Messiah will come and judge those who are our enemies. So the, the first thing we need to understand is it's reasonable to understand a Messiah is coming. Um, when does the Messiah come? We also know from the Old Testament He comes on the day. Not just the day. He comes on the day of the Lord. Alright? We're just seeing the word day here, but they would have understood this word repeated many times in this passage to be the day of the Lord. 
He's going to come on the day of the Lord. And again, if we go back in the Old Testament, and I won't take the time to take you there other than to tell you the day of the Lord used in Isaiah and Jeremiah and in other places is a day of judgment. We're talking about judgment here. All right. There will be a day of judgment coming. Jesus is already here. Already. He has come to bring judgment. That's the focus of this text. The fact that he has come is a very good thing. You and I are very glad that he came on that very first advent. Because on that very first advent, what he accomplished on the cross was he, he, he made an escape route available to you and to me by which we might escape judgment. All right? He has offered, well, that's a very good thing. You and I, hopefully, have accepted that escape route and we have taken that. But it's also, the day is a very bad thing. Because the day when it comes will be a day of judgment. All right? So we kind of have two things going here. The bottom line is this. Jesus is coming. The day of the Lord represents a good thing for those who believe. And it will be a coming day of judgment for those who do not believe. The kingdom of God is already but the kingdom of God is also not yet. It's already here, but it's not yet realized in its fullness. He repeats, as he talks to the disciples now in the verse 22-24 that I just read, he repeats what he just told the Pharisees. He says, the days are coming when you'll desire to see, and they will say, look here, look there. It's the same thing he told them. The Pharisees, he's just repeating himself to the disciples. And he says, don't go out and follow him. Anybody says, this is the coming, look over there, look here. Uh, that's, not, that's not a sign. They're not pointing you to something right. Don't go there. That's the exact same thing he just told the Pharisees. Nothing new there. And he tells them there will be no signs. No stinking signs are necessary, nor are they coming. No advance warning of this coming. To the contrary... There will not be advance warning. This is going to come like lightning. When lightning comes, generally speaking, often, it might be cloudy, it might be raining, but generally speaking, it, there's no advance warning. I remember about 30 years ago, that's give or take a decade, um, there was a story in the Albuquerque Journal about some guy who was out hiking uh, the Mount Baldy there in Santa Fe in the Pecos Wilderness. And he, I think it was with his sister, if my memory serves me right, and he was struck by lightning and killed. The unusual thing about this that made it a particularly newsworthy story was there was not a cloud in the sky. It was a blue sky day. That's why we say sometimes that it comes out of the blue. This lightning will come. It will come out of the blue. It will come without warning. It will come without anything else. It will light up the sky. It will shock you. Grant's in high school, give or take, me and him are sitting on the front deck and the rain's coming down and it's pouring off the roof and there's hail and it's so loud we can't even talk to each other and it's as hard as we've ever seen it rain. And in a moment's time, a lightning bolt struck and I swear it went between my shoes 
I mean, it was so loud and so powerful. And so, and the rain and the hail was coming down. And I'm thinking he remembers this. We just looked at each other. We couldn't talk. It was too loud. We just laughed. We laughed at how it had scared us, this bolt. We both had just jumped, okay? What Jesus is saying here is like lightning comes, it'll come with great surprise. And with boldness of light, it'll be seen by everybody. There will be no doubt is what has happened. It's almost like in a twinkling of an eye, this bolt will come. This surprise will happen. And it'll be visible, public, and obvious. Now let's stop here for just a minute. Because I don't want want us to jump uh, too far ahead of ourselves. I want to pause and think about the people who are hearing this and reading this for the first time. And they're hearing this from Luke. Okay? Um... There's some confusing information being given here by Christ. If the day of the Lord is here right now, and that's supposed to be a, number one, a day of judgment for some, but of good news for the faithful, then why are we going to Jerusalem with the expectation that you're going to die there? Uh, There's tension in those two thoughts, that the day of the Lord is a good thing, for those who have waited for the wicked to be judged, but at the same time, you're going there to be crucified and die. The, uh, could they put this together? And the answer is probably not. This must have been very confusing to them then, but uh, what we need to realize is they haven't been given all the pieces of the puzzle yet, have they? See, later on in John chapter 14, at the upper room, you know, right before Jesus is actually crucified and arrested, arrested and crucified and died, in the upper room there's a conversation and he says, he's telling them, I'm going to go away. He's going to clear up the tension that we have here in 17. In chapter 14 he says, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you will be also. He was telling them in that moment, he was clearing up what must have been confusing in 17. I'm going away and then I'm going to come back again. This wasn't in their eschatology. This wasn't in their plan. This wasn't in their understanding of the King Messiah that was to come. The King Messiah was to come and judge right then. And he's saying, no, I am come. I'm going to die on the cross. We're on the way to Jerusalem for that, but I'm going to go and then I'll be back. So he lets them know in John 14, later in, in, in the chronology of time, that there will be two comings. Not just one advent, but two advents. In the upper room, he gives them in 14 a piece of the puzzle they never had before. But he's not satisfied with that. He, he wants to jump ahead. Let's go to 26 through 30 here. He wants to also, he wants to emphasize this. The suddenness. You, uh, you don't get this. You haven't processed it yet. You don't realize the, what it's going to be like when it comes. So let me give you some examples because it, it's like Noah and it's like Lot. Just as it was in the days of Noah, there were, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Just like Noah, so it will be. Jump down to 30. He tells the story of Lot. And in verse 30 he says, so will it be on the day with the Son of Man. Whatever happened with Noah and with Lot, so will it be with the Son of Man. Let me illustrate. Let me get into your head. Let me get into your emotions and let you feel 
what happened here. With, with Noah, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. And boom, the, the lightning bolt came in and the rain came down and it destroyed everything. It destroyed them all. Many wedding plans. It says they were marrying and being given in marriage. How, how many ruined marriages were there that day? How many wedding planners never got paid? The flood came and it destroyed them all and there was no sign. They didn't know that was going to happen. And likewise with Lot, eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. It's interesting, always there's eating and drinking going on. Lots of thanksgiving. But eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Somebody just poured concrete. Somebody just, you know, put a, a framed house. Somebody just did something and fire and sulfur came and burned it all down. There was no advance warning. There were no signs. Now, I'm raising my voice a little bit because I want to cheat. We're, we're trying to get into their heads, but I want to get into your head too. I could have Mark turn the sound up. This, this, this should be screaming at you, some of you in this room. There's something being said here you need to listen to. That's why Jesus didn't just repeat. He has given illustration. He wants to drive this home. This passage, I'm, I'm telling you what it says, but I want you to now try to find yourself in it. Are you planning a wedding? You getting engaged? Did we not just eat and drink? Could not this second coming have just happened? This is about you. If, if this is about you, pay attention and listen very carefully. This could totally spoil your plans, you guys. What is he thinking? No notice? Well, are you about to retire? Did you just take a new job? Did you just get married? You almost have an empty nest? The truck you ordered isn't here yet? There will be no warning. Their circumstances and what came on them suddenly as a lightning bolt could just as soon, that lightning bolt could just as soon hit this room. That's what he's saying to us here. On that day, verse 31, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, the one who's in the field not turn back. You might be on a rooftop. You might be out in the garden working in the field. You might be mowing your lawn. You might be watching World Cup soccer. You might never get to find out who wins. I'm trying to put this in perspective. There will be no warning signs. You do not get to go back for family albums. Your dog or your cat. As a matter of fact, it says don't turn back. Don't even turn back. Remember Lot's wife. She turned back, did she not? Genesis chapter 19. She was warned. The angel came and said, leave. We're going to destroy this place. It's going down. Don't look back. She was warned. In spite of the fact that she was warned, don't look back. What did she do? She looked back. Well, the New Testament clarifies the Old Testament. And Luke doesn't say she looked back. What Luke says to us, don't turn back. 
I think Luke is trying to make more clear what looking back, what, what, what Lot's wife did, really meant. She was looking back. She was looking back on Sodom where they lived, and things weren't so bad. Maybe they were doing what they shouldn't have been doing, false gods, but they had a pretty good life. Their truck had probably arrived on time. It was all polished up. Things were good for them. And she was regretting having to leave that back. Well, what about the dog and the cat? Will they be okay? She's worried about the here and the now. She's worried about the already. And Jesus is saying, this is not about the already. It's about the not yet. It's about what is, is to come. She wanted her life. She liked her life. It was a good life. But verse 33 says, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. She liked the life she had, and she wanted to preserve it. She was very happy in the already. Things in her life in the already were pretty darn good. Verse 34 and 35, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Can you imagine waking up and your spouse is gone and you're there? Could you imagine an empty, in the kid's bedroom, one of them is there and one of them is no longer there? One of your friends at work, one of your family members, one's there, one's no longer there. Because they've been taken. It says here somebody's been taken, right? One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women. One will be taken, the other left. Stop. There's two ways to take this. There's two ways to look at this. There's two people in a bed. One gets taken, one doesn't. One gets taken, one gets left behind, right? Now, if you want to know who gets taken and who gets left behind, which is which, which is it? Does, does the unbeliever get left behind? Or does the believer get left behind? Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins want to tell you what to, what, to, what to think about this, right? According to them, in the Left Behind series, the ones that gets left behind is the, are the non-believer. Okay? I think of the 42,597 books, theirs belongs in the trash heap with the rest of them. Okay? There's so much bad theology in that series. If you've got it on your bookshelves, go home and take it and throw it away. Okay? Because the truth is in, the, is in these 66 books right here. And all you need is these 66 books. The text says, one will be taken and the other left. One will be taken and the other left. Okay? And the question then is where? Where will they be taken? Right? Where will they be taken? One will be taken, one will be left. One will be taken, one will be left. Where will they be taken? Well, they will be taken where the corpse is. There the vultures will gather. They're going to be taken to the vultures. The ones that are taken are the ones going to the vultures, my friends. The ones left behind are the spiritually alive. The ones that are spiritually dead are taken to the vultures. Not that that really matters a whole lot in the point of the, of the passage. I'm just trying to say here, left behind has some connotations that aren't exactly correct. Let's, let's stick to the scripture. Where? This thing started out with the question, when, and it ends with the question, where? We have our bookends. Within those bookends, somewhere we have an emphasis. We have the point of the whole story. Let me summarize. The kingdom of God is already, it's here, 
But the kingdom of God is also not yet. He's going to come again on the day of the Lord. The kingdom already was a very good day. A very good day for you and I, for all of mankind, because when he came that first time around, he died on a cross, took the punishment for your sin and mine, and in doing so, he has provided an escape path. You and I deserve to be judged, and he has given us a way out. The way out is the cross. But there's also a kingdom not yet, and when that kingdom not yet comes, there will be a day of the Lord, it will be a day of judgment. The second advent will come with great surprise and great calamity. It will be visible to all, but it will be too late to take any stand other than the ones you have. You've been warned. Do not be caught with your pants down. You have been warned. Do not look back and cling to this life. Look forward to the second advent. Let me, um, let me keep going here. <clears throat> first advent was sweet, right? Christ died for you and I, a tragic death, uh, a historical event of great importance, but to you and I, it's a sweetness that is to our ears. It is as sweet as a bacon-wrapped hot dog wiener with brown sugar on it, maybe floating in butter, I don't know. The first advent is enticing as salty bacon fresh fried out of the skillet. It's as appealing as chocolate chip cookie dough. We like it. You can lick the beater and like it. But like all the others, it's only an appetizer. The first coming, the first advent was a good thing. My friends, a very good thing. But there's something better. There's a better fruit that will come from that and it's what has already not yet happened. The kingdom of God is not yet realized. The kingdom we live already is, full, is fallen, it's broken, it's full of pain and sorrow. The future kingdom won't be. Why, do we, why are we married to this place? Well, why does our life revolve around it? Well, why do we hold on to it as if our lives depended on it? The here and now, the already. The best indicator to me of, of my assurance and your assurance that I am an heir to the not yet kingdom is the way that I live in my life in this already kingdom, soon to be... Re this, I'm going to read that again. I like the way I said it. I, it, it um, the best indicator of your assurance and mine that you are an heir in this not yet kingdom of God is the way you live in this already soon to be replaced hellhole, third rock from the sun. This is not our home. This is a lousy place, intentionally lousy, that we might long for and hope for something better that has been promised but not yet realized. Why are we so complacent in the here and now? Let me tell you what is. What do we know about the kingdom of God? Jesus is the king. He rules. He's in that position because he was placed there by God Almighty. It was a decision before time that Jesus would be the kingdom of this universe we live in, in the already and the not yet. He did not attain that position 
as a result of ballot harvesting, vote recounts, or runoff elections. He was placed there once and for all by God Almighty. There are no term limits. So, it's His way or the highway. No other options exist for you and I. Submit to this king or don't. That's it. Period. The clock is ticking on this planet and all life that dwells here now. And that clock alarm might go off, and when it does, boom, it's going to happen, and it's going to be done. We have this means of escape, friends. I left out verse 25. I also left out verse 36. uh, Take a look at verse 36 real quick. Get in your Bible and look at verse 36 real quick. What do you think? (laughs) Typo? Does anybody have a verse 36 in your Bible? You do. What translation do you have? Uh, American Standard. American Standard, okay. Old school. (laughs) There are... Um, it, it says that uh, uh, two in the field, a uh, woman in bed, woman in, two women in the field will be. There is a verse 36 that says, and two men in the field might be also. But that's not in the best manuscripts. So most Bibles, it's left out. Just wanted to make sure you didn't think I skipped over something there. Okay? Nickel knowledge. Um, so where, where am I? Verse, let's go back to verse 25. Because I didn't do anything with that one either, did I? They asked for a sign, and they were told there will be no sign. At that point in time, there's tension. They are they're misunderstanding. He did give them a sign of sorts, though. He told them, there is something yet that's going to happen before I come back, and that is that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He had to go to Jerusalem to die on a cross and to provide a means of escape for those of us of faith who would believe. So here's what we're going to do some takeaways here, okay? This verse 25, uh, some of you Simeon guys know that there are some grammatical structures in Scripture that lead us. You got, you got a bookend, you got this on this end, and then you got this on this end, and it leads us to one thing at the top, and that's the emphasis, and that's what we have right here. And verse 25 is that climax, it's that emphasis. And what he's saying here is all about the cross. Because without the cross, everyone in this room would be doomed and died uh, to eternal death. Because we would be lacking. But because there has been a cross, because that happened, there is a way of escape. So there's two ways to look at this passage. All right? If you are an unbeliever, This passage is telling you, on the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes back, it will be a day of judgment. And my friends, that's going to leave a mark. It's going to leave more than a mark. It's going to be tragic for you that you haven't dealt with this. And there will be no second chance. There will be no additional opportunity. 
the emphasis of this passage, we, we want to think about the second coming in its positive senses. Hallelujah. The wicked get theirs. We're on some of the songs we sang there this morning. When that was the emphasis of the songs. What a great day it will be. Yes, it will. But that has nothing to do with this passage. The Pharisees had been rejecting Luke's counsel, Christ's calling from the beginning. They have not been listening. The, the kingdom parables leading up to this, they, they reject, they reject, they reject. And he's telling them in this passage right here, the day of the Lord is coming for you. That this passage is about those of us sitting in this room who don't own the cross. Who don't own what Christ did on the cross. This passage is screaming to you. If you haven't yet owned this, repent now. Escape now. Let go. Don't look back. Whatever you're holding on to, whatever you're clinging to that you think you have time, you think you can work this out, you don't have time. Do it now or in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, in a strike of a lightning bolt, it's going to be over for you. And the day of the Lord will be here. This is about the Pharisees. He's attacking the Pharisees. That's to them then. And that has all the application of the world to us now that the cross has given everyone in this room a way to get out. There are no coattails here. He'll look in every bed and he'll say, this one's in, that one's out. This kid is in, this kid is out. This husband's in, this wife is out. This is what it's going to happen. This is what it's going to go down to. No second chances, no nothing. No one rides in on their parents' coattails. No one rides in on their spouse's coattails. You, you, you stand and will be judged on your own. If you are an unbeliever, that's where you stand right now. Deal with it today. If you are a believer, what's the news in this passage for you? What's the flip side of the coin? My, my suggestion to you, if you're a believer... Because of the cross and your belief in the cross, you've won the lottery. You've won it all. You know, every lottery, there's all, a lot of times just, there's multiple winners. There's multiple winners in this room of us who have won the lottery. We have won the lottery. We hold ourselves in our hands, the winning ticket to the lottery. But what I want to teach you today is the, the prize is not the ticket. The prize is what the ticket will do for you. The prize, the, the prize is that the ticket will get you into the not yet. Do you live as if that is of any importance to you? Do you and I live in the already, in complacency, and we're just fine, and every once in a while the not yet you know, pops into our mind, or is the not yet the reality we live in? The, the ad, first advent, the already is, is a done deal. The not yet is impending. We, can hard, we should be able to hardly wait. As we celebrate the first advent, what are your decorations looking like? Do they look like this world, and are you clinging to this world? Or do your decorations and do your plans for this coming advent season? Do they add up to a, knowing that this Advent season, what this represents is the not yet that isn't here yet that I can hardly wait for? 
One has already happened. One is in the not yet waiting for us. Luke's not done here. In the next couple of, next chapter, he's got some more kingdom parables, and he's going to talk about people who think they're in and they're not. People who think they got it made and they don't. You've got to deal with it, my friends. You better deal with it now. You, better, you should deal with it today. You must lose your life to gain what you cannot lose. Approach this Advent season in a way that gives evidence to the weight you give the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is the turkey. It's not just icing. It's that corner piece of cake. It has an icing on the top, icing on the sides. And if you're lucky, a flower to go with it. That's what I'd be talking about. All right? It's not just a cookie dough. It's a nice cold glass of cold milk and a fresh cooked cookie out of the thing dunked and eaten. The second advent is what this is all about, you guys. And the first advent has enabled it to be for you and for me. Last metaphor, last illustration. We live in the already here and now. In God's blueprints, we're living in the floor plan, but it's only on paper. What this passage is telling us, it's, it's promising for us that there is an elevation page that has the whole picture for us that's out there some way that will be, but is not yet. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha. Father, we come to you this morning. We pray for those in this room that each one of us would ask ourselves where we stand in this equation. That those of us who haven't dealt with it would deal with it now, today. That it would be done once and for all in our lives. And we would know our destiny in the all already means we have a room in the not yet. We thank you for that and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.